Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello and welcome to the Technique Podcast, the show where we speak to artists about technology. I'm Sam Fry and today we are talking about the process of writing and the differences between creating content for different platforms. The guest is Rebecca Denton, an author and content creator who sometimes goes under the pseudonym Lizzie Dent. Rebecca worked in TV throughout the noughties, where she worked on a variety of interactive concepts. Since then, she has pretty much moved away from the digital storytelling world to focus on writing novels, including a trio of books under the title This Beats Perfect. As we are still in a COVID world, this interview was conducted online, so the audio isn't always perfect, but it is a great conversation. So let me hand over to the interview between Richard F. Adams and Rebecca Denton, which starts with Rebecca explaining what she does. Well, I'm an author now. I I do actually have a day job. I work at Red Bull in content in Salzburg, actually. But on the side, I'm, I'm now an author and I'm on to my fourth book, my adult debut. So I did three sort of young adult books beforehand, which were kind of around living in London and being into music. And then I decided to write a super uber commercial fiction for adults under the name Lizzie Dent. And that's coming out with Penguin next year. So I'm really excited. I'm actually in the middle of edits at the moment. So it's not a fun way to spend a Sunday morning. So I'm grateful to chat to you today. So that's it in a nutshell. And and you've made that shift of your background, obviously, is you've spent a lot of time working with big TV companies, certainly throughout the 2000s, on interactive content. And both of us have sort of made a move away from interactive TV and have sort of gone on to other things. You've made the opposite journey to most in that a lot of authors are grappling with the notion of digital and, and interactive storytelling is all over the news because of things like Bandersnatch and stuff. But you've kind of made the opposite journey where you've gone from non-linear to linear. I'm kind of amazed, really, you know, for a good solid 10 years of my TV career, I was really wound up in the um, idea of the future of storytelling and that word transmedia that was thrown around a lot, (laughs) which seems to have vanished off the face of the earth now, or maybe I've just left the scene, but you know, cross-platform storytelling and multi-platform storytelling and all the different guises that it came in. But essentially it came down to how do we tell stories in an interactive and unusual and, I guess, modern way. For 10 years I worked in some pretty, I think, pretty innovative, for television anyway, content departments. And we took TV shows like The Amazing World of Gumball and we stretched them out across digital with like Twitter feeds and 
fake YouTube accounts and we tried all sorts of things to kind of tell the stories across platforms and interactively. And in the end, it felt like a lot of work for a very little reward. It was really very difficult process that I don't think we ever really nailed. And still, amazingly, the company that I'm with now, we will have creative brainstorms and someone will say, is there a way to make that interactive? And I find myself sort of sitting back and thinking, just tell a very strong linear story because that is always going to be better. <laughs> you obviously see Bandersnatch, the latest poster boy for interactive TV, and it's not doing anything different to what you've tried and what I've tried in the past but it does yeah. it better without a doubt I mean it doesn't do it so good on a poor connection but there was that sort of technical overhead wasn't there definitely Bandersnatch is an interesting example obviously I I played it or watched it however we say all the way through the different various endings but it struck me when I finished it I was like well, this is good but it's not what I'm gonna want nine times out of 10 or 19 times out of 20 or even 99 times out of 100 in a story. I don't know how often I want to be active in my own entertainment. Sometimes I don't. Most of the time I don't. Going back to sort of my own early experience, the first jobs I was involved with making interactive were game shows. And, and, yeah. and that was back in the early 90s. And, and that was specifically because I think the company had recognised that actually we couldn't at the time make anything truly interactive, but what we could do was layer a game on top of a game to give you a sort of effect of playing along at home. But I was never sure how storytelling would work like that, and we struggled with early experiments with soap operas, for instance. I feel like it's gimmicky, really, at the end of the day. And also, I wonder whether gaming has actually fulfilled that space for interactive storytelling and that it was always more the people predisposed to gaming and creating their own story within a game, of course, that were likely to be interested in interactive storytelling, really. And the majority of the audience actually want a sit back and read, sit back and watch linear entertainment experience. I think it's interesting what you said to me before about were we at a blessed or cursed time, because I do wonder if there's going to be a big commercial attempt at doing something really, really properly that's interactive. I think Bandersnatch was a first big step, but I'm talking maybe something even bigger that might break the mould. But my gut feeling is is not. I feel like it's going to come from theatre rather and gaming. That's what I think. Well, that that's an interesting thing because one of the things I spent a couple of years at the Royal Shakespeare Company recently working on bits to, around transformation stuff. And the Royal Shakespeare Company, I don't know if you know, but they're very advanced. They've had virtual avatars on stage and things like this as part of The Tempest and, and various other shows they've done. And one of the things I, I sort of wrote to them before I sort of went there was this notion that I thought theatre was the closest medium to gaming. Viscerality and it, it's enclosed space and it's sets. And you, if you actually play games, they are sets. They're not filmscapes. People always compare them and say, oh, they're cinematic. But that cinematic thing with a game to me is just a, a presentation layer. And actually the experience feels like theatre. I, I, I I'll give you an example. I recall sitting at the stage, next to the stage at the RSC, 
because I could go and watch as many plays as I wanted. And there were a couple of people, actors, just in front of me who were having a, how shall we put it politely, a love clinch on, on the stage <laughs> okay. in front of me. But that was so real compared to, to that. I got the same feeling from that that I got from playing, you know, Doom or Call of Duty. Wow, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I don't know if you saw the Punch Drunk show. I can't remember the name of it, but it was the one, the Americana one. Well, that blew me away. I mean, that was basically it was a story on a loop with several different endings and subplots. And as an audience member, you walked through the story freely. You know, you wear a mask a bit like, you know, so that the people in the audience are sort of, I guess, pushed a little bit into the background. But you can walk freely through, I think there's, you know, a good dozen incredible sets trying to piece together this story. And that was, it was absolutely incredible. And I went and saw it three times. It blew me away so much. But yeah, that's, I totally agree with you. For me, that was, that was interactive storytelling. It was definitely nonlinear. But what it wasn't was digital. Nothing has come close to the thought that was put into that production that I saw. And I remember walking around there thinking, you can't create this in television, I'm sure of it. You can definitely create it in gaming. I agree with you there. Because that's how it felt. It felt like I was moving freely. I was a first-person viewer, if that's such a thing, (laughs) you know. And I was telling the story in the direction I wanted to tell it. And it was just, it was just really amazing. And I think, I think I became very dis- disillusioned in the end with the attempt by television to try and find a way to become, you know, non-linear multi-platform storytellers or whatever the term is, because it just felt like it, it, it couldn't be done to me in the end. It was like 10 years of like plugging away and then going to see something like Punch Drunk and going, it's the wrong medium television. It can't do it. It's a, it's a sit back experience. And I know everyone says, oh, but the kids are online watching YouTube and stuff like that. But when they're watching stories like the Umbrella Academy or whatever the latest show is, they're also sitting back and enjoying a linear experience, you know. Totally agree. I've got a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. I've got a games room and, you know, all the, all the stuff you'd expect from a, a modern tech sort of household. But in the end, they sit back and consume. This is a bit of a... Um... <laughs> a bit of an admission but I felt like when I was in TV I couldn't crack the content team right I couldn't get into traditional development it was very competitive and it was really hard to get into but I could work in digital and I could work in digital content so I felt like in a way I was doing it because I couldn't do the other thing at that time and I felt like there was the coming together of people from gaming, people people from the web builds, and I'm going back a few years here now, the web team, the gaming team, the marketing team, and they were all trying to create something that they didn't actually have the skill set for as well. That was another thing I felt. 
like the big hitting storytellers were all still in the linear teams. And so there was a mixture of a bunch of things. And, And a lot of the push was coming from gaming, which in hindsight was right. But at that time, a lot of the game builders were just doing like really simple flash games and like really basic stuff, you know, and they were saying, oh, interactivity, you know, our game's been played a million times and Mm. we need to do more interactive storytelling and stuff. We didn't have the money. We didn't have, I think, the skills. We didn't have enough permission to work with the IP as well, even though, like, for example, at Cartoon Network, we owned and a lot of the creators you know, were from Cartoon Network and we owned the IP, it was very difficult to get on board any of the talent from those programs. They weren't interested. They didn't care about it. Funnily enough, by the mid-2000s, I was a creative director at a company called U Media. At that point, we were having more trouble with the talent, like exactly what you're saying, than we had 10 years earlier in the mid-90s. When we were doing analogue interactive overlays in the early 90s, we were doing it with ITV, Channel 4, so I was turning things like game shows like Play Your Cards Right and Family Fortunes, Family Feud as it is in America, into interactive versions, and we did Channel 4 Racing and things like that. And they would come along, look at what we were doing, and they would actually modify, for instance, their on-screen graphics so that our <laughs> graphics could sit alongside them. In the early 90s, they would do that. Ten years later, no chance. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, I remember it got really contentious sometimes, you know, you'd come up with an idea and you'd go and get it signed off by your creative manager and maybe the marketing team and perhaps the head of digital. And then somebody would say, oh, you better go and show, you know, original content and development that and make sure they're happy. And then... (laughs) You'd get, a, you know, you'd open a whole can of worms and why are you guys writing this and you shouldn't be involved in doing that and why hasn't that come through our team? And then we'd say, well, okay, well, you know, we'd love you to get involved and they'd discover the budgets were, uh, you know, 20, 30 grand. <laughs> they'd, no, no, sorry, we're actually too busy. I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was tricky. But, you know, what was really freeing for me, so when I wrote my first book was like, just this this idea that somebody would hold that and come back to it, I don't know, a dozen times over a week or however long it took them to read, and that they were just completely consumed in that one world from words on the page, from a story start to finish. It was so much more satisfying than anything I'd ever done. It was just a whole different creative process. It was much more personal, you know, even though there's editors involved, it's not collaborative writing a novel much like I suppose creating a piece of art isn't particularly collaborative (laughs) and that's freeing it's really freeing it's like tv's great I mean it's a great creative profession but um I'm definitely more creative than I've ever been I mean like a whole new level of of what I never what I never thought was possible from myself has opened up now That's a classic artist's journey that you've kind of found something where your voice is particularly effective and there's sort of a feedback loop that once you find your voice, you start to feel free. Whereas I think what you'd said just previously was we were you know, working in interactive TV, trying to do interactive narratives, 
But there were so many mundane other things controlling what you could or couldn't do, not least of which was the technology, but mostly the business. So suddenly you're sat at a desk writing, and there's nobody telling you what to do, how to do it, or even why you should be doing it. (laughs) You know, there's no reason other than you want to do it. In TV, I think there are jobs that get close to it. For example, if I had taken up screenwriting and written a pilot and obviously it's massively collaborative but you do get that original kernel moment where you're like I've got an idea I'm going to write it down it's going to become a book or a in that case maybe a pilot script but yeah I think in the end it goes through so many hands in tv and it there's so many pieces to the puzzle isn't there how a dop shoots it how an actor delivers a line how an illustrator if it's animation draws a character how um, a head of content changes the motivations because they want to send this message you know it's just hugely collaborative from start to finish you get the kernel of the idea, but then it becomes part of this big process. So I think in TV there are areas where you can get a hint of it, but you'll never get it like you you do when you sit down and just write for yourself. I think for me, as I got older, I became more brave. And so, well, TV's a very critical environment. I don't know if you agree with it, but I found that I was surrounded by a lot of very critical people. And it used to frighten me to put my ideas forward too strongly. I found the environment quite aggressive in a way. I wonder if TV attracts a lot of creative people who end up in an environment that's quite stifling and maybe that's why it has the quite vicious competitiveness. Perhaps that's why, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it in great depth. Do you feel artistically freer that you're not having to wrestle with the technological aspects of this? There is no distraction, there is only the story. It's just you and the page, you know, from start to finish. And I don't need to think about the reactions of my audience in terms of their physical movements. I don't need to think about how can I stop them from picking up the phone at this ad break and how can I... You don't have to think about all of those little things that used to be so important to me because the platform is pretty straightforward. It's a book or an e-book and the method for consuming my story is to read it or listen to it. I've got to say, I really do like audio, side note. <laughs> I think I like it more than books. <laughs> you mean audio books? Yeah, audi- yeah, audio books, but then, you know, from that, I like really, really like podcasts. I, I mean, I'm amazed. I don't even listen to music anymore, you know. When I put my headphones on and I've got something to do, it's all audio now and it's getting better and better and better the offerings that you can find now podcasts audio books are getting you know they're becoming like plays I don't know if you've heard Daisy Jones and the Six have you heard of that book the novel is written in the style of a documentary so it's like a start it's like interviews instead of getting just you know somebody to read the audiobook they've actually cast all the characters from the book including like Jennifer Beals is the lead woman in it and 
it's like listening to a, a play, a, you know, a radio play. It's like a, it's really taken audiobooks onto the next level. So funnily enough, I am starting to wonder if there is a book format I can write with that in mind. <laughs> so oh, it doesn't leave you entirely, does it? <laughs> well, no, but it's interesting, isn't it, that what you're talking about in British terms is a return to the Radio 4 things, so BBC dramas and things that were done on radio and done exceptionally well, and that really have never gone out of fashion with a certain audience. For me, it's very interesting. BBC is a good example that they took down their radio app and launched something called Sounds, BBC Sounds. Which is, which is actually doing what Spotify does, but without the pop music. It's mixing podcasts, drama, comedy, and stuff that is not going anywhere near their radio output. Absolutely reflecting what you're saying. I mean, audiobooks have been a massive success, haven't they? And they're growing. They are. They are growing and growing and growing. And digital ebooks, the Kindle, you know, the digital transformation of publishing. Kindle and ebook, you know, have done well, but by far the thing that's that's shone has been the rise of audio. It's just incredible. And it's for, for me, because I'm a busy mother of two kids who has a day job and writes on the side, so you can imagine how much free time I have yeah, <laughs> in my day-to-day -day life when I've got stuff to do, like cleaning the kitchen and putting the washing on. I can listen to audio, like I can be entertained and enjoy myself through audio books and podcasts in a way that no other entertainment, except, of course, music, can do, but no other storytelling format can do because I don't have to engage my eyes. All I have to do is engage my ears, which means I can do other things. And so that's the thing that's so strong about the, the audio format. When you write something, you sort of have to put yourself in the mode of what you're writing. Do you think authors now should be thinking, this would make a great audiobook? Or do you think they should just stick true to what they're just sitting down and writing the story? Well, no, I was just kind of laughing before because <laughs> I'd said to you, oh, you know, I've moved away from digital. Yeah, yeah. But actually, funnily enough, I have been starting to think about what approach can I have to writing a novel with the idea that it will definitely become an audiobook. Is there any way to write a novel creatively or cleverly or interestingly that would make its, you know, transformation into audio more exciting? So that example I gave you, Daisy Jones and the Six, I'm sure that Taylor Jenkins Reid, I think is her rock star name, the author, I'm sure she didn't write it thinking this will make a great audiobook, but you know what, it, it made a really good audiobook. And it, ha and it has made me think, you know, is that some small consideration I could give outside the novel? How would this come across well in audio? Or perhaps I could write this from several different perspectives instead of my one first-person perspective to make it more interesting texturally to listen to. What do you think makes audiobooks so compelling sometimes? It's a really interesting question. I've just finished one this morning and I didn't like the narrator, didn't like the way she spoke. I didn't like her inflections and actually didn't like her accent, weirdly. Well, I didn't not like her accent. It just didn't feel right to me, the way she was doing it. So I don't know what makes a good audiobook. It's definitely the narrator is really important, so therefore I guess it's the performance, isn't it? I suppose. So if you've got a well-told story performed well, then it's very, very compelling. 
It is intimate, but then it, it does depend a little bit on the style of the book. The one that I just finished, I didn't find very intimate. It just, I found it kind of grating. But I have read other ones that have been performed so well and you, you really feel like you're listening to the protagonist of the story as the author intended. I know there's a huge amount of people who, are, who like ASMR videos on YouTube, which if you've not come across them, it's a whole movement of videos where people talk very quietly, very softly, very slowly. And they're getting literally millions of listens where people are commentating or just talking on things and this, that, and the other. And it strikes me that if there's a market of literally tens of millions for people speaking quietly, slowly, <laughs> soothingly, comes back to what you said about the accent. The accent isn't right, therefore it grates with you. But if the accent's right... It sort of lives with you. Yeah, that's a great description of it. Sometimes when I put the headphones on and I sit down and listen to an audiobook, I'm just completely consumed. And it does it that way that a novel does. So, yeah, you have the voice, but you still have to imagine everything else. So you get a bit of both worlds, I think, in that sense, if it's done properly. You, maybe it all does come down to that individuals choose how active they want to be in the story, <laughs> you know, right at the end of it. Books, you are completely active. You're thinking about everything, the voices, the sounds, the smells. You know, you're reacting to the words off the page and creating so much of it in your own mind all the way to an IMAX cinema experience where you don't have to do anything, you know. <laughs> no, absolutely, and you're, you're literally just placed looking through a window into that world. You're just sponging. Maybe there's something in that. How do you think that the, the form of writing is likely to be changed by considering audiobooks while you're making it? Not yet. That I know of. I mean, yeah. more more experienced than people than me would know, but I definitely think that that's coming. Audiobooks and the whole rise of audio at the moment does certainly suggest to me that, for example, would a written-for-audio story ever become a printed book? And yet books, and this is probably why <laughs> why so many people like to write them, books have been turned into everything. Yeah. Audio. Film, TV, games, board games, <laughs> I mean, everything. But the question is, will audio ever be strong enough to be the primary format? Maybe it's not about the format, maybe it's about the genre. Which is what we always used to say about transmedia and cross-media back in the day. It was just always like every single time we sat down to come up with a concept, it came back to the same genres. It's only going to work in, like, sci-fi or something that's got a technology thread to it. And when we had the big ideas, that is, anyway, we used to think, oh, you know that, that series that came out, Mr. Robot? Oh, you know, that, I don't know if there was any digital storytelling part to that, but that's the kind of show that, you know, you were thinking about, I guess, something that had a real, you know, real tech element to it that you could potentially exploit for another online um, complementary well, story that's, or thread. That's where Bandersnatch worked, isn't it? Because part of the Black Mirror thread. He's obsessed with tech. He loves it, you know, Charlie Brooker. But, but I wonder, you know, going back right full circle to the start of the conversation, in a sense, when we talked about Bandersnatch and things, it's just, I can't help thinking that's another novelty in a sense a very well done novelty and brilliant uh, and all of that but i can't see a sustained series like that 
No, I don't. I don't see one at all. I mean, maybe someone will do it one day, but you know, I don't. I don't think it will be a smash success. Have you come across many writers who are technologically aware? Because I see a lot online of people who are trying to help authors through technology and people that write novels much more successfully than I do. They're very clever storytellers <laughs> and I don't know how much of them are going to be interested in anything beyond getting their story out on the page. It's a totally different kind of creative really and I don't know that enough people have been attracted to the idea of cross-platform storytelling to really take it to that next level. And that's why I agree with you, Bandersnatch was such an anomaly really because you had Charlie Brooker's fascination with technology and his brilliance with storytelling. And finally, I don't know how many times I've had conversations about creating choose-your-own-adventure content. I mean, 10, 15 (laughs) years of it. I mean, really. And great, he finally did it and showed it could work and I think probably proved that it's not really a sustainable format. It was a great one-off. I mean, I kind of look at all the different disciplines now and I think, you know, gaming is what it is because the people that are attracted to gaming love to insert themselves in the story. They love that interactivity and more and more they love a strong story within that playground. You know, and TV people that like TV like to sit back and watch. People like me like audio because it leaves me free to do other things, menial tasks that I need to get on with. You know, people like books because of the the sort of curl up and and cosy and lose yourself effect that we were talking about before. I think when I worked in TV, we had this kind of expectation that people would evolve beyond that and want you know, a piece of everything. And, you know, I'm in my 40s now and I'm never going to take up gaming. It's just never going to happen. <laughs> you know? no, I, well, I, I know what you mean. You're not going to become a hardcore gamer, but you may well be playing casual games on your phones. But you're right. You know, you're not going to change it. And we thought back in 93, you know, we thought, wow, I've got this game show, suddenly interactive layer. Who couldn't love this? And, of course, you- nobody's bothered <laughs> I know, and if you look at even like things like X Factor, a friend of mine worked on the apps, you know, they put out some, I, I can't remember what the formats were, clap along or guess, guess the vote or whatever they were. I mean, people did play them and they were very successful, but really it was just, I think they all got, there was prizes involved and it wasn't because people wanted to insert themselves into the story. I mean, they could do that with their phone vote. And how old-fashioned is that? That was Rebecca Denton, interviewed by Richard. I actually found it quite inspiring to hear about Rebecca's journey as a writer and how she has become braver and more comfortable with sticking to her creative vision over time. So if you're interested in hearing more about Rebecca's work, here's how you can find her. I have a nom de plume now, which is Lizzie Dent. And I have a website, lizzydent.com, L-I-Z-Z-Y-D-E-N-T. 
just still learning my name. Um, and on Twitter, you can find me at Dent Lizzie. So that's how to get in contact with her. Well, that's all the time we've got for this month's episode. Thanks again to Rebecca for being part of this interview and to Richard for conducting it. I hope you're keeping safe wherever you are right now. And we look forward to speaking to you again in a month's time. In the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.